Well, I, I think I preached on this, some of this passage about three or four years ago. And um, it's a well-known passage and also one that um, has quite a lot of uh, div- division over into what exactly it means and who it's talking about. The main issue is really, um, as the title is Saint or Sinner, is does the passage describe a Christian who is struggling with sin or does it describe somebody who is not a Christian, somebody who is under law and not saved? Um, If a person is not a Christian, then they are actually under law. Uh, You may not be Jewish, but if you're not a Christian, then you're still under the moral law of God. If you break any of the commandments of God, which are summarized as love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, if you break any of those commandments, then you've broken God's law and you're under his judgment, uh, whether you believe it or not, in fact. The speed limit is 70 miles an hour on the motorway, (laughs) whether you believe that's a good law or not. If you're not a Christian, you're under his law. And... Um, If you think of yourself of keeping most of God's law, you know, his Ten Commandments and his moral law that follows, then the Bible says that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. So, you know, those who are not Christians are under this law, and if you break but part of it, then you come under God's judgment And that's why we can ask then, does this passage describe a Christian struggling with sin or with somebody still under law, i.e. not a Christian? Well, the reason this is important is because it raises questions about the very nature of the Christian life. Is the Christian life one of struggle, weakness, and seeming inability to, to defeat sin in our life? Or is it a victorious life that glorifies God? Uh, If Romans 7 describes a non-Christian who's still under law, who really wants to live for God but has not the ability to do it, then the passage is understandable because it has phrases like verse 15 of chapter 7, for I do not understand my own actions. I don't do what I want, but I do the very things I hate. It seems like a hopeless life with very little ability to live for God. And, you know, does it describe um, the religious people, then, who try to live godly lives? Uh, Even zealous lives, like Paul, who was was, before he was converted. He didn't know God, um, obviously, before he was a Christian, but he was actually very zealous about the law. And there are plenty of people who are uh, religious, plenty of people who... um, read the Bible, go to church, would describe themselves as religious or Christians, but actually are still under law and the judgment of law because they've never come to Christ. So is it describing somebody like that, somebody who uh, loves the law, has a desire to keep it, but is not yet a Christian, or is it somebody who is a Christian but lives a very defeated life, somebody who keeps uh, messing up and somebody who doesn't seem able to lead a godly life. The problem is that, you know, lots of Christians who struggle with this passage, 
uh, who, or who have struggled with their life, come to this passage, look at it, look at the bits that talk about his inability to follow God and think, yeah, that's me. I'm like that in the Christian life. Um, and they sort of wear it as a, a badge of honor and they say, well, that's just me. That's my identity. I'm somebody who struggles in my Christian life. So that's why they come to that passage and say, well, well, it's the Christian because my life matches that. Um, but we shouldn't do that. Firstly, the Christian life surely should be much more victorious than that. And secondly, we don't interpret the Bible based on our feelings and find bits that match our experience. We actually need to look at the Bible and look at what it's saying to us and follow the flow of the argument all the way through to allow God to speak to us, not us to speak to God and tell him what he ought to write if he'd known better. So the aim of the passage today is to let the passage and the flow of the text speak for itself. What key message is Paul trying to convey What does it mean as its context and how do we apply it to our lives? Well, the arguments so far in Romans, Romans 1 to 3a, the first bit of chapter 3, says in summary that everybody on the planet has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody has no hope of saving themselves. Everyone is without excuse because the truth of God is all around and all are therefore deserving the wrath of God. There's no one without excuse. The latter part of Romans 3 says, but God steps into history and reveals a way to be righteous that is not by outward attempts to keep the law, because they will naturally all fail. This way is by personal faith alone in Jesus Christ. It is belief that Jesus died on the cross bearing the wrath of God In our place. Justice is done because Jesus fully pays the penalty for our sin. And we respond to that in repentance and faith. It's a wonderful stepping into history and intervention of God by giving Christ to uh, do what we couldn't do. Make us righteous by his own death. Romans 4 says... In fact, the way to God has always been through faith and not by the law. And Abraham being declared righteous by faith is an example of this. Romans 5 says, before Christ, people were under law. And the law showed up the sin of, of people and brought them under judgment that leads to eternal death. But because of the grace and love of God poured out through Christ, people have been made spiritually alive. So it shows the effects of chapter 3 and the, and the cross. The effect is to, for those who have personal faith in him, they're made alive. They, are, um, they have peace with God. They're under grace, not law. So it's, Romans 5 is really encouraging and looks at all the benefits of what's happened previously. And then Romans 6 continues with that, but says, we're under grace, not law, so does that mean you can still sin then? Because the more we sin, the more it highlights the grace and kindness of God. And then it says, no, we can't continue in sin, because we died to sin, we were buried with Christ in his death, and raised to new life with him in his resurrection. 
So we can't sin, we shouldn't sin. And they ask another question, are we ruled by sin? This is really important because it shows whether we um, can help what we do or not as Christians. Is sin inevitable? Well, it's not, Romans 6 says, because when you're united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection, being united in his death, it breaks the power of sin. That dominion and that stranglehold that sin had over us has been broken. It is gone because it's been, sin has been nailed to the cross. It's power that enslaved us has gone. The language Paul uses is enslaved to sin. It's very powerful language. And that has been broken, that slavery. Sin is no longer our master. Uh, God becomes our master. Being raised to new life with him means that we have the life of God within us. We share in the life of God. We have his life flowing through us, like the vine and the branches example in John 15. We have his power in us, which greatly exceeds the power of sin. It's a very victorious picture of the Christian life. It's a wonderful picture. So, as we come to our passage in Romans 7, I'm going to look at three main things. The prelude, which is a continuation of Romans 6, which is freedom from the law. That is uh, Romans 7, verses 1 to 6. That's freedom from the law. And then, the rest of Romans 7, I'm going to... Um, split into three parts as a sinner to saint framework. So these three parts are like a framework for us then to work out is this the Christian or is it a non-Christian that all this struggle bit of the passage is talking about. And then finally, saint or sinner resolved. Well, looking at verses 1 to 6, remember I'm trying to work out from the flow of the argument whether the, this defeatist language, I don't do what I want, but I do the very sins I hate, is talking about the Christian or the non-Christian. Having seen in Romans 6 that the believers freed from the power of sin, Romans 1 to 7, 1 to 6, goes on to say that believers are freed from the bondage of the law. Is it the same thing as freedom from sin then? Well, the passage clarifies that once someone becomes a Christian... They're freed from the power of sin because they're freed from the bondage of law. Essentially, although the law is a good thing, it provokes a sinful reaction. This is why the two things are linked, law and sin. Verse 5 of chapter 7 says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So when the, when the law was given, things like um, do not covet, for example, don't covet your neighbor's house or wife or anything else that he has, you hadn't really thought about it too much. But now the law comes and is highlighted to you. The law triggers something inside us. It arouses the sinful passions within us. And we end up dwelling on the things you're not supposed to think about. An example of this Excuse me if I've given it before, but it's a great example. Is the no fishing off balconies example. Um, the ho- there's a hotel on a seafront, and the owner saw people fishing off the jetty some distance away. And he thought to himself, 
You know, my hotel's right on the seafront. If people get into their head that they can fish from their balconies into the sea, then what they're going to do is they're going to get the rod, they're going to swing it back to cast, and as they swing it back, all the, the weights are going to smash the windows behind them. And I don't want all my hotel windows broken. So he put up signs around the hotel saying no fishing on balconies. Well, the number of incidents went from none to several a month. And uh, after a while, he thought, this is no good. Because people saw the signs and they'd never thought of fishing from the balcony at all before. So they, they thought, oh, that's a good idea. I'll go and do it. So the rebellion inside them is aroused. And they think, well, right, I'll do it. And lots of windows got smashed. So after a while, the hotel owner took the sign down. You know, and to people who are under law and outside of Christ, i.e. not Christians, God's laws aren't just ignored. They provoke a reaction. And the sinful passions get aroused and people appear worse than when there is no law. As Romans 6 is so encouraging, the previous passage, because it tells us that being united to Christ breaks the power of sin. It it no longer has this power to dictate to us. Well, as, as Romans 6 um, says this, Romans 7 and 1 to 6, this section, it continues this encouragement because the thing that stirs up the sinful passions inside of us, the law, that, that has been broken too. Our bondage to the law has been defeated and broken. And it uses the example of um, a wife whose husband dies. It says if a wife marries when her husband is alive, then she's an adulteress. But if the husband dies, then she's able to look forward in her life and marry again without any guilt. She's free to move on and marry another because the bond with her deceased husband has ended. When you become a Christian, you die to the law. And so you are able to live for God and live fruitful lives, the passage says. Because you're not held back by that bond to law that provokes uncontrollable and irresistible urges to sin. It's amazing to think, actually, once you become a Christian, that this urge to sin is uncontrollable. But it is, you know. If, if you're not in Christ, you might be really good and moral but you can't help ignoring God. You can't help rebelling against God himself. It's just within you. It's a law. And there's nothing you can do about it until you become a Christian. So looking forward, the dominating factor in the Christian life becomes the Holy Spirit. The bond to the old has been broken. The old husband, the law. And the new husband, the new master, is the Holy Spirit. And it indwells the believer and gives us the power to please God. Christians aren't perfect, believe me. But Christians are able to serve God. And there's one thing you can't do unless you're a Christian, and that is love God. And you can't live to please him or love him unless you are a believer. It's impossible. Um, But Christians are able to freely serve God. And they're not overwhelmed by the lingering sinful nature within them. Because Christians still have a sinful nature 
It's just not the dominant force anymore. There's a new owner in town, and that's God himself in the form of the Spirit that dwells within us, the Spirit of Christ. So, freedom from bondage to law. My second point, then, was to have a framework from sinner to saint. Rather than just go through the whole of Romans 7, the rest of it, I wanted to more scientifically split it into three points because I'm more of a scientist where I think Paul was a legal person and they tended to write big, long legal arguments, um, which you can see in the, in the Bible. So I'm not, I don't want to improve on what Paul writes because I couldn't, but I want to put it into three points anyway. So my first point is before the law is given. The second is after the law was given, but before Christ. And then the third is after Christ came and died and rose again. So before the law, um, after the law was given, and then after Christ was given. So firstly, 2.1, if you like, before the commandments was given. Looking at verses 8 to 9 of Romans 7, Paul says, For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. I was once alive apart from the law. How can you be alive then? If you're not a Christian and you've not even got the law, how can you be alive? Well, Romans 5 verse 13 has already said, sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Before the law was given, this is the time between Adam and Moses in the Old Testament, and people were alive because although they did things wrong, you can see Cain killed Abel for a start very early on. So there was sin in the world. There was murder then. But there was no law to show what sin is. There was no do not covet or do not steal to shine a spotlight on what disobedience to God looked like. And this is like a person with no religious convictions. Most people now are not like Paul. They're, the people that I discuss things with on the Times comments section, I'm I'm really careful to put a biblical argument sometimes to some of the issues that are discussed, even the American election, um, because they're having a go at Mike Pence for being a Christian. Um, But they don't argue with me scripturally. People say, it's pathetic, why do you believe in that fairy tale? I mean, they actually write that. And uh, this is the Times, not the Daily Mail. And they say, uh, this is totally, belief in God has disappeared, it's irrelevant, it's a useless dogma and things like that. So a lot of people nowadays, they're like the people before Moses, they're alive because they have no sense of law, no conviction of sin. They've completely suppressed the knowledge of God within them, which the chapter in Romans 1 describes. To them, there's no law of God. So in that way, they're alive, but only in blissful ignorance. This, I think, is the modern equivalent of before the law was given, Romans 5.13. Well, number two, 2.2, is the time after the commandments were given, but before Christ. At the time of Moses, God gave the people the moral, ceremonial, and civil law. The moral law, the Ten Commandments, and the other commands they're more than just ten rules and restrictions. They're, they reflect God's holy character. 
And they show how people are to live in loving obedience to God. And the overall point of verses 7 to 13 in um, Romans 7 is to say that in spite of the reaction that this loving law has in people, the law is actually a good and a holy thing. It's a side point, really. But although the law produces this reaction in people, the law is good. Verse 7 says, you wouldn't have known what coveting is if the law hadn't said don't covet. Verse 12 says, the law is holy, righteous, and good. So a side point, really, the law is good. But that may be one of the points Paul's driving at. But in doing so, it sheds light on the spiritual state of people who are under the law, who are not Christians. And as we've seen, verse 8 and 9 says, sin seized the opportunity and sprang to life. And it killed me. When people come face to face with the law... The sin gets aroused, like the no fishing on balconies example. You know, I mentioned that example, and if we're honest, you know, the law provokes that reaction in all of us, like keep off the grass notices. I always think, why is that keep off the grass notice there? That grass looks like it just needs walking on. It's so nice and green and plump and springy. And so, you know, I might walk on it, but... I don't need to really because there's loads of nice footpaths around. But there's something that it provokes, the law provokes and arouses that rebellion inside of us. What I didn't mention before when I was talking about balconies was the state of people like Paul. And you don't see many people like that today. He was zealous. He was religious before he was a Christian. He didn't go from nothing to everything overnight. No knowledge of God to, to everything He was somebody who actually knew God very well. He knew about him. He didn't know him intimately, but he knew about him very well. Uh, He was extremely religious. He trained under Gamaliel, a famous teacher. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew the law inside out. He says, if anyone else thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, Philippians 3 tells us. Paul was a religious Pharisee of Pharisees. He, you don't see many of those people like that today. He's more, he was more like an, an Islamic extremist than a, than a Christian because he, he was so zealous that he persecuted people to death. Um, Look at Acts 8 and the stoning of Stephen. But at the point, uh, at a point in Acts 8, he then came out from under the law and was converted. He met the Lord Jesus. But Paul, before this, said, under the law, sin sprang to life, arousing all manner of passions within him. And he died spiritually for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So even for zealous people who have the law of God, it's like a rope around the neck because it has no effect in um, quashing the rebellious sinful nature that's welling up inside us. So that's the second stage. And then the third stage is 
after Christ's death and his resurrection in this framework to look at whether Romans 7 is talking about a Christian or non-Christian. In the period after Christ's death and resurrection, people live in a much more positive situation. The power of sin is broken. We have the life of God through his resurrection. We're able to live for God through the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We've just seen in Romans 7, we're able to move on with our lives. Uh, the bond to law, the bondage to law has been broken. We're free to live for him and in his power and in his strength. Romans 8 continues uh, this theme. Because to get a good idea of the context of Romans 7, we should look at 6 and what immediately follows it, Romans 8. Romans 8 is very victorious. It says things like, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit is the operative power of the Holy Spirit. And it's a reminder that the Holy Spirit has a much greater power than sin ever had. And it's the Holy Spirit that has sway in the believer's life, not the power of sin. So there, therefore you have the framework for the three positions before the law, being alive but blissfully ignorant of sin. You have under the law, like Paul was before he met Christ, very zealous, an extremist you would say, but still not a Christian. And then after Christ comes into somebody's life, after Christ's death and his resurrection, uh, somebody who is very different, somebody who has the power of God within them and the ability to resist in and the ability to live for God. Okay, so then we come to the third point then. Saint or sinner, um, how, how do we resolve this uh, passage that seems so defeatist and so negative? Well, this section is full of these defeatist statements that can't be true of the Christian. Verse 14 says, But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Sold under sin is a really powerful phrase, and it's derived from the image of selling war slaves under a yoke. It's a condition that links back to the desperate state of the unbeliever, where in Romans 6, where he says, You were once slaves of sin. So surely this language can't be talking about Paul as a Christian. It can't be a Christian. Christians aren't slaves to sin anymore. We just had Romans 6 saying that the power of sin has been broken. So it can't be a, a Christian. Even though people come and say, well, I relate to that. I've got a really defeat. I keep struggling with all these problems and there seems no way out. So they match their experience of Christianity to what they see, it can't be a Christian because we're not sold under sin and we're not slaves to sin. Verse 14 also says, also being of the flesh or carnal. It's a descriptive term used of a person without the spirit of God. So if you're in the flesh, verse 14 says, but I am of the flesh sold to sin. If you're in the flesh, the meaning is a person without the Spirit of God. It's only used of Christians in one place in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians, where people were behaving as though they didn't have the Spirit, but not that they were actually without 
the Spirit of God. So in the Bible, it's never used of somebody who is a Christian. So sold unto sin and being carnal or fleshly, they're not descriptions of the Christian. Being a Christian is much more victorious than that. And we've been delivered from slavery to sin. So it can't mean a Christian. And then Paul uses phrases that illustrate very little power over his situation. We had the children's talk where we said the connecting the wire up to the starter motor allowed the power of the engine to spring to life and to flow. Well, the Christians have the Holy Spirit who empowers us. Ephesians is full of Paul's prayers where he prays for God's power out of his glorious riches to, um, to dwell within our innermost being. A very powerful statements and prayers of Paul's. So it seemed, so the rest of the Bible would indicate that we have this power within us to live godly lives. Well, Paul uses phrases here in verse 18. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Uh, look again with me at verse 19. The evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And then look at verse 22. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. That can't be a Christian, can it? Compare it to Romans 6, Romans 8, Ephesians 3, where God's power is available to us to defeat the sin and to live for God. That can't be talking. That's a powerless situation that Paul's describing in 18, 19, and 22. We said the Spirit is the controlling power. We're not captive to the law of sin anymore. We're free from it. I think that in Paul's mind, before he's a Christian, he delights in the law. He loves it. It's his occupation. He's a Pharisee. He's a teacher of teachers. He studied under the best teacher in the land. He loves the law. And as he becomes awakened, he, become, he wants to keep the law. He earnestly desires to keep the law of God. He earnestly desires to follow God. But he's simply not able. Because he's not a Christian. It's the only conclusion can be that he's not a Christian there. He has no power to do what is right. Whereas we do. You know, sometimes, as, as Christians, you might be backslidden and be a long way from God. And, and the Bible warns against giving power back to sin. You know, sometimes people can get into really dark habits and get into really bad places. Um, and things can really get a hold of the Christian. Like online gambling, for example. It's so easy to do, apparently. You just click a few buttons on the internet, link your bank account, and boom, you know, you've lost two grand in a day. It's a very dark habit. Christians could be involved in that. But you know, there's always repentance and going back to the cross and restoration for Christians. That power, I mean, gambling has such an awful hold and power over people and can ruin their lives. But you know, even that horrible dark power has no dominion over the Christian. Through repentance and crying out to God, not trying to crawl your way out of the hole, but actually 
admitting to God, I am useless, I don't know how to help myself, then God will reach down into our lives and pull us out of it and restore us as we turn to him as we are. He'll then transform us and restore us to himself. So as a Christian, there's always a way back from even very dark holes in our lives. But Paul seems to be a lot less, um, he seems to be very underpowered compared to this. Unable to do what he delights in, which is to follow God. So that's really one of the most powerful reasons why I think this is describing somebody who's not a Christian and therefore really encouraging for us as Christians because there is always a way back for us. This isn't the normal Christian experience of uh, doom and gloom. And if it is, then we're not where we ought to be. We're living an impoverished Christian life and we need to repent of it and come back to him, plead with him for more power and more of his love and of his grace in our lives. The final, um, the final smoking gun point, if you like, for this being a Christian um, is really an explanation of the use of the present tense. One of the reasons that people think that Paul's talking, um, sort of talking about himself as a defeated Christian is that he switches to the present tense in verse 13 and 14. So in verse 13 of Romans 7 before, you'll notice that Paul's saying, you know, in the past I was, I did, and so on, which makes you think he was talk, makes some people think he was talking about himself before he was a Christian. And then when he comes to verse 14, you've got all this defeatist language, but he's talking about it in the present tense. You think, ah, well, maybe the Christian life is like that. It's pretty defeatist, but he's saying, Present tense now, you know, I am and I, I don't understand my actions, not I didn't understand my actions. I, did, I don't understand them, it's present tense. Um, but the commentator says, when principles are being illustrated from intense personal experience and in argumentative form, it's only expected that the dramatic use of the present tense might be adopted. So he can have been talking about his past before he was a Christian, even using the present tense, because that's a literary form to describe intense personal experience. And in fact, it's a well-known argumentative technique, technique and in use in all modern languages. In narration of past events, the present is frequently used, while in the vividness of representation... The past is looked upon as present, says the commentator. So, I, so Paul is looking back at a very intense personal experience of intense frustration. He loves the law. It's his job, his life, his business. But he's not saved. He's a Pharisee. Um, but not a Christian. But it's so vivid in personal this struggle that he uses the present tense. So this is Paul. All these reasons I've outlined, sold under sin, can't be him. Carnal, can't be him. Because the power of sin has been broken. Present tense. Well, it can be somebody um, in the past before they were a Christian. All these these reasons. Um, 
all point to the fact that this is a description before he was a Christian. And then verse 25, Paul says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you think, well, how can he thank God then um, if he's not a Christian? But it's something that's called a parenthetical interjection. It's where, it's where Paul's talking about a subject and then he's so overwhelmed by his gratitude to God, he just bursts out in praise and thanks. And if you look at many of his books in the Bible, they have those uh, in them. So again, it doesn't prove that this, he's talking about himself as a Christian. So in conclusion, I think if somebody comes to you and says, look, look at Romans 7, isn't the Christian life a difficult one? Oh, I'm always struggling and I can't, you know, make head and tail of my life. I'm always being defeated. It isn't the normal Christian experience. This is Paul before he was a Christian, but when he was religious. The Christian life is one of hope and joy and victory over sin and enjoyment of God. If we're not enjoying the presence of God in our lives daily, then why not? Because we can do We have the power. If we're cold and lifeless before him, then we've got to say, be honest, Lord, I am cold. I am lifeless. I just don't feel like spending time with you. And he will reach down and pick us up. And he will put his Holy Spirit into us and lift us and draw us close to to himself. Because the Christian life is victorious. It's not defeated. We died to sin. We're not enslaved by it. It has no power over us. We have been raised to new life in his resurrection. So we can have this ongoing relationship with him and come into his presence and enjoy him. We are able to live for him. We can be obedient to him. Because the Holy Spirit is the controlling power, the new master. The old master is in there lingering, but he's not in control anymore. He's gone. This is a really victorious picture of the Christian life. Don't you think?